You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It's Darth Vader. Watch out. And he's got a lightsaber. It's Kenner's new Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I got you now, Ben Kenobi. With R2-D2 and C-3PO, there's even Chewbacca and Han Solo. Someone's coming, Chewie. Who's there? It's Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Now I know the Force is with us. Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO, and other Kenner Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rant. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are delving into New York Toy Fair 2019. This is a yearly event that we try to cover as much as possible and this year we were lucky enough to hit a couple of surprises that I really was not expecting. Some interesting, somewhat maybe controversial entries into Star Wars because, you know, I'm all about the Star Wars. But I still have some other related toy news from Toy Fair that uh, I'd like to share with you guys. Then after that, we are going to jump into a combination of our poster of the month and movie adaptation novel. And for that, I'm talking about Scarface, 1983 Scarface. We are going to start with the history and the style of that very iconic Al Pacino poster, and then follow up with the novel. I recently completed reading the novel, and what a treat that was. If you're a fan of this film, you will not be disappointed. So, let's begin with Toy Fair 2019. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Well, I wasn't planning on really doing too much coverage of Toy Fair 2019 this year. I've covered a little bit in the past, and reason being is that I really was not expecting much in terms of new material, you know, coming from especially Star Wars. The rumor going around, and, and the, just the general vibe of, because the next film is being released in December, they're going to kind of hold back a little bit in terms of letting us see anything. You know, we haven't seen any trailers. We haven't even seen the title of the film yet. You know, for all we know, it could be coming down pretty soon. Odds are right now, everybody's shooting for April, you know, with the Celebration Chicago, that that's probably when they'll start teasing us with something. But traditionally, 
not always, but in the past there have been instances where at Toy Fair they might at least have a title of a film already, you know, out there so they could show you the logo and they would show you like a box with just a logo and then, you know, they would just kind of dance around that a little bit and not give you much information, but at least they can give you the logo. But right now they're not even giving us that. They don't want us to know the name of the film at this point. And the internet has been going bananas, you know, speculating on what title it might have and when it will be dropped and all that other stuff. So who the heck knows? So because of a lot of these things, again, I really wasn't expecting much. However, once it was all said and done, there were a couple of announcements made. And as usual, I, you know, the day of uh, the Hasbro reveal, if you will, um, I think it happened over the weekend. On the internet, I was able to follow a couple of different sites, uh, especially uh, Star Wars Action News. They were amazing the way they can cover these things and give you the information so fast. Little by little, through them and other sites, information started dropping little by little by little and the first thing that popped out of nowhere was a retro line of action figures from star wars i was like oh that's interesting and the first picture i saw was of what looked like the original luke skywalker star wars action figure with a big sticker that says retro on it so as we start to kind of dig a little deeper into this what they are talking about is a series of six action figures. Uh, if you think of the original 12-back, the, the original 12, well, this would kind of be the, the first six of those 12. It would be a Luke, a Leia, a Han, a Chewie, a Stormtrooper, and a Darth Vader. They all look pretty much identical to the original Kenner figures. They're packaged almost identical in that manner. Again, they do have a what looks like a sticker, it's made to look like a sticker, but it's not. It's really printed on. It's made to look like one of those special offers that they would put a sticker on, and you know, in the past, you know, if we get a get a free figure if you mail in these proofs of purchase, you know, that kind of thing. But it's a a completely original sticker looking <laughs> print on the card. And from what I understand, they are purposely differentiating the look of it, uh, at least the card, and even the figure, if you really think about it, uh, this way people don't try to resell them as original vintage. You know, they don't try to scam somebody into the, you know, in in the process. It will have that, that sticker-looking print. The card itself has worn edges and scuff marks and scratches on it. And again, that's part of the card. The card does not look mint. It looks slightly scuffed up. The back of the card, completely different looking card than the original card. This is a card specially made for this particular line. From what I understand, the figure itself, it is not molded from original 1977 molds. From what I've been told, they have 3D scanned original figures and then molded them out of those scans. So as a result, they will be slightly slightly different in size, I believe. There's a very slight, I mean, you have to really get a ruler out, I think, and, and a magnifying glass to really get an accurate measurement. But they will look a, a tiny bit different in size because of this new process. Because again, they don't want to make them exactly the same. Also in the back of the figure, you know, where you have the date stamp, you know, 1977, uh, here you will have 2019. Further to help with people trying to scam somebody into thinking these are original and you know not selling them in that manner. 
to the naked eye, to me, you know, based on those pictures I saw and the displays that they've they've uh, they've had there for people to take a look at, uh, they look fantastic. They look absolutely fantastic. The Han, by the way, is a big head Han. It's not a little head Han. <laughs> How do I feel about them introducing this? Well, I have mixed feelings. Very mixed feelings. As I started seeing these pictures, and I was, you know, texting a friend of mine, and I was saying, oh, man, I wish they would have done this, but instead of these existing figures, I wish they would have gone and started producing some of the non-existing figures, the ones they never had a chance to make, you know, beyond the, the, the last 17 figures, some of the other ones that they were supposed to make. And then a few minutes later, boom, all of a sudden somebody says, Tarkin. I'm like, what? Tarkin? Well, here's the thing. They are going to produce a Tarkin figure, similar carding as these original six. The same fake sticker, the same background. Hasbro-style Tarkin, five points of articulation Tarkin, simple looking. However, by looking at it from what I've seen, uh, and again, I'm just being picky because that's what we do when we're crazy Star Wars fans. We are super picky about things. It looks good, but it looks... A little too good. To me, the face sculpt, it's a little too good. Not as good as a Hasbro one. Not that good sculpt. But still, I believe they should have dumbed it down a little bit. Just to make it a little less noticeable. So it matches the original style. And also, the uh, the tunic that he's wearing is more of a grayish tunic and less of a greenish tunic. Which I would have gone with a little slightly more green. And I know that's a point of contention. There's a lot of figures that are made for the Imperials that are they, they have a certain greenish tint or a grayish tint, depending on the movie, depending on the lighting, depending on a lot of things. It goes back and forth. But, hey, listen, I'm just being critical because why not? We can be critical. Would I want this to be in my collection? Again, that's a hard one to say. That's a very hard one to say. The problem is that this particular Tarkin figure, you cannot buy it by itself like you can these other figures. I believe these other figures are going to be Target exclusives, I believe. I'm not entirely sure. But at least you can pick them up at the store. As soon as these things were announced, they put them up on a, I believe, on a Target website and they were sold out immediately. So we are eventually going to see more of these, obviously. But again, the Tarkin one, the catch is that it comes within a game, the Escape from the Death Star game, the same exact game that I've talked about many, many episodes ago that I have. I have that game from back from, I think it was 77. And the way they're going to package this is that you're going to have this box game, you know, with all the pieces inside, made new, of course. And within the, the package, the carded figure will sit inside with a little window so you can see through it of the, you know, the figure coming out. You can then remove the figure with the card. And if you want to open it, you can open the figure. If not, you can leave it in the card. It doesn't matter. They're going to hit you up for 50 bucks. So if you want Tarkin in a retro package and a retro look, that's what they're going to hit you up for. 50 bucks as opposed to, I don't know, something about 10 bucks for the other ones, the individual other ones. So, I have mixed feelings. Uh, I, I own a Tarkin. I, I, I purchased a, a long time ago, no pun intended, a custom-made Kenner Tarkin that, that I, I'm very happy with. I, I'm looking at it right now, and I, I'm still amazed at how good it looks. I love it. I absolutely love it. So, I'm not sure exactly what to do about this. I, I don't know 
you know, whether or not, you know, is this a one-shot deal? Are they producing these six plus Tarkin and that's it and then they'll move on to something else? Don't know. I know that I do own that I got it way, way later than when it came out. A Kenner, Power of the Force, uh, this is back in the uh, mid-90s when they started uh, going crazy again with Star Wars. I think it was about the mid-90s or late-90s or something. A four-pack of original-looking figures, which was Luke, Han, Vader, and Chewbacca. And these came with uh, white screen cards also, a couple of sample white screen cards. And this was a four-pack. And I remember around this time, from what I, from what I understand... Because this was also the early days of the internet, I think. So I wasn't that into following the story. But I believe some people did get all bent out of shape because all of a sudden, oh my God, these figures, you know, they're going to be the uh, decreasing the price of the original ones and people are going to try to scam people into... No big deal. Nobody remembers these. Who cares? No, you know, so what? Now we're going through a similar situation now where some people are freaking out because of... The market's going to drop and the original ones and and they're saying the guns are going to look so identical to the original guns and the accessories that people are going to be selling, you know, these new ones for, to people that are looking for vintage. You know, there's this, there's this whole vintage versus repro thing going off to the side of everything that really I don't, I don't really care about. You know, I'm not that invested in this that, 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 that I see this as a threat. Why is Hasbro doing this? Well, personally, if I had my way, I would have liked them to, instead of releasing this this way, I would have released a line of six figures, let's say, just to start off, of figures that were never released. So, for example, do the Tarkin on his own. Do a Biggs. Uh, do the Slave Leia. Do, I don't care, some other creatures from the Cantina. You know, do a couple of more uh, characters that could have been made do the bartender you know whatever do a couple more droids you know especially droids that are so easy to, to you know repaint i mean for crying out loud you take a c-3po repaint them white and there's your white c-3po give them a nice vintagey looking card and sell them just to see what happens see if people are into it obviously with everything else you know the formula is always the same if people buy them they'll make more well, who knows what's going to happen here? We don't know if they're going to make more. We don't know if people are going to buy them. How easy is, is it going to be for people to find these? I don't know. At this point, I am on the fence. I am on the fence because I do not know what to do. If I knew that these six figures were the only ones and then they weren't going to touch them again, I might be leaning more towards getting them and displaying them. Plus the Tarkin. And unfortunately, you know, it's 50 bucks to have to fork over for a figure, you know, in a game that you only want the figure. On the other hand, there is always the danger that maybe they'll, they will make more. Now, will they go crazy in terms of, will they, could they go through the entire Star Wars line? Could they pump out 21 figures, 20, 21 figures, and then can they start making Empire, and then can they start making Return of the Jedi? They could. They, they could go that crazy. Uh, you never know. Uh, again, it all depends on people and what they're buying. Now, we, we do know that Casbro has taken a hit, especially Star Wars toys have taken a hit lately. It's been on the news that the, you know they're not making as much money as they think they should be making. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Some people are blaming the movies. Some people are blaming, you know, just the general interest. 
also keep in mind, there's no more Toys R Us. So when you remove a giant distributor retail chain from the, you know, from the board, that's less places to buy. And that's just some people might say, screw it. Uh, The closest place I had was a Toys R Us. Now I have to drive even further to find the Target or Walmart or something else. I'm not doing it. I'm just going to go online and take my chances. You know, that that could have an effect on the two. That that could have been one of the reasons also why, uh, you know, they haven't made as much money. Now, again, why is Hasbro doing this now? You know, people have been bitching and moaning for years now about that kind of thing. I have. I know I have. Well, one possible uh, reason, I mean, let's let's understand this. Their purpose is to make money. So they are going to try to figure out and try ways of making money. Just like films, you know, we talked about this before, they're not here to entertain us. The point of films and movies and television shows and music and everything, the point of all this is to make money. It's business. And if it doesn't make money, guess what? You're not going to see it, buy it, find it. So, over the last, I don't know, what, five, six years, maybe a little less, there's been this new wave... You call, we want to call it a trend, whatever you want to call it, of companies that have been putting out vintage-looking action figures, starting with Reaction, which is, I think it's Super 7, it's the parent company or something like that. You know, they put out all those alien ones in the past, and I've talked about them before, and they put up so many other lines. I mean, every year they have more lines. Granted, not all the lines continue. They, they Sometimes it's a one-shot, and then they move on. Sometimes it's a Wave 2, a Wave 3, Wave 4, you know, whatever. But that's that's like the big company. that they, They've been doing it the longest now. Then there were a couple of other ones. I think there's Pow, Bang Pow, or something like that. And there's there's a couple more smaller companies popping up that all of a sudden they're they're trying their hand at these smaller figures. The the figure that I have from Flash Gordon that's from a separate company. It's a completely different company. But yeah, everybody is uh, you know there there people are starting to realize. I guess the companies, the big companies, are going to realize that between customizers selling these on the internet and companies now taking a shot at manufacturing, you know, mass producing these, that maybe there's something to it. So it is conceivable to think that the reason why they're doing it now and not 10 years ago and or five years ago is that because they are realizing that there, there could be money in this. There could actually be some, some dough that they could make by, you know, mimicking this old style. With that said, remember, they did put out a Boba Fett a while back. You had to order it, you know, it was... A little more expensive than the typical figure. So, you know, I guess they that, that was a pretty successful thing for them. So now uh, this is going to be a, a, a an experiment. You know, they're still going strong with all the other lines. You know, they're, they're Black Series and they're three and three quarters here. You know, the six inch and this and that and the other. But they are, you know, trying this out and see which way it goes. You know, hopefully it won't go the way of the uh, usually the the, the the younger kid lines. You know, they always have those angry birds or some kind of gimmicky little kitty thing. They always do. This year they have some more. I don't even remember what they're called. And they might be a continuation of the previous year. I'm not entirely sure. I don't care about that. Fine. Whatever. But this is something different and new. Uh, so I have to figure out what to do about it in terms of if I'm not going to go crazy and buy and try to get them all, should I just get one? You know, I like the idea of owning just one. This way it's a representation of that line. And, you know, and I don't have to own all, all six of them or, or all seven of them. Maybe I'll just get the Tarkin because that is the only one that is 
completely, completely different. Again, I already own a, a loose version of him, but it's obviously it's a customized version. So I'm, I, I will consider that. Now, the other couple of things that they announced having to do with Star Wars is that uh, Force Friday is coming in October, I believe, and they called it a Triple Force Friday because they're going to be premiering, I guess, not only the Episode Nine merchandise but Mandalorian merchandise. That's another one that they want to they want to start the big push, the, the toy push in October, and a video game which I don't remember the game the name of it because I always uh, you mean because I'm not really into video games, but they're kind of doing a triple push that day it's not going to be just the film um the other thing is that they're they're starting something called hasbro pulse i think which is kind of weird it's almost like a exclusive high-end membership gimmick if you will you pay i think 50 bucks i don't know if it's a yearly uh uh fee or or how it works but it gives you access to like a specialty shopping for high-end items and then they were talking and they were showing this this eight inch darth vader super articulated it's got all types of different materials that it's made of it's very rubbery in certain parts so you can pose them in any conceivable way and they're all super hyped about it and you know again you're paying you know you get free shipping okay that's the thing it's like a it's like a free shipping thing by by becoming a member of this this exclusive club uh, you get, uh, I guess, first dibs or maybe only dibs at specialty merchandise and then free shipping on top of that. Not too crazy about that. I'm not looking for, you know, spending money just to have exclusivity or access to something and not really getting anything in return in case you didn't decide you don't want to buy anything. You're still out 50 bucks. So not crazy about that. They did put out a lot of new products, a lot of new figures, nothing crazy. I'm still waiting for my Clat 2. It should be showing up soon. They did, however, show a skiff uh, because the, the Katana, Java's uh, giant sail barge, is coming soon to the people who order it. Uh, I believe they had one on display there. They are also going to release a skiff, a small skiff. So you can put your figures on it, and it's very uh, full of features. Again, this is one of the this is more or less a reproduction of the uh, of the Kenner one, one of the last Kenner, you know, big vehicles they put out for Return of the Jedi. It looks really great, looks fantastic. Uh, they did looks like they did a great job on it, and they are also putting out, which is really unusual, and I guess it's part of this Jabba thing that they are into now because of that big uh, sail barge. I think it's uh, it's part of Jabba's dungeon. It's his trophy room, they call it, I think, or something like that, which is basically three walls that could be assembled, and the center wall has Han on the carbon block on the wall, and then there's a Tauntaun head to one side and a Jerba head on the other side, and the, and the set also comes with two additional figures. Uh, so it's kind of like a playset figure combo. It's, it's about 50 bucks. Just like the skiff, I think it's about 50 bucks. So, again, I do like the idea of there having a Jarba head because I've, I've talked about the Jarba creature for a very long time. <laughs> it's one of those... It's one of those obscure things that I wish they would make a um, a miniature, you know, scale version of it. You know, they, they do a Tauntaun. Well, do, get, get me a Jarva. Let's manufacture a Jarva to go along with it. Well, they're making the head. So I don't think it's worth it for me to buy that thing just for the Jarva head. But uh, you never know. I mean, it's it's out there. Maybe uh, if it doesn't sell and it's discounted to 10 bucks, <laughs> maybe I'll get it. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, Star Wars was a, a mixed bag of surprises. 
this year, you know, uh, I was more surprised than usual. And again, speaking of retro kind of three-quarter inch figures, five POA figures, these other companies that I mentioned before, like Super 7, uh, you know, uh, Reaction Super 7 and that sort of thing, they are putting out, and I already ordered mine, and I've talked about this before, a, I think it's a second wave of Planet of the Apes figures, and including in that wave is the mutant mendez the 26 i think his name might be well anyways he's a mutant and uh we had known about this for a while and i've talked about this recently because of the fact that i own my own set of uh planet of the apes figures not not the reaction figures but i i remember saying that i would love to own a version of a mutant well here it is the mutant is coming so i'm very happy about that they also had a display for they live John Carpenter film, They Live. I've always wanted a alien creature version in that size. So they had some, I guess they were pro- unpainted prototypes on display and the, and the card backs. I think they might have had the card backs. So uh, I think there's a set of three figures and one of them is the alien mutant. So uh, I am looking forward to that. Probably at this rate, we won't see them till the end of the year or, or longer because these things take time. And then there was another company, I forget the name of that company, that is going to put out a set of the warrior figures. Uh, this is a company that already had uh, larger size figures uh, announced and shown at a different toy show. But now for New York Toy Fair, they uh, actually showed, I don't know, I don't know if they're prototypes or finals or whatever, but uh, th- they showed three figures. The one that I am interested the most, if they eventually put it out, is one of those uh, Yankee baseball player looking guys from those gangs. It's the most, to me, it's the most iconic character of the line you know just like anything else they give it a shot put out a few very relevant figures obviously you always want to put very relevant ones up top because this way you know you you get everybody's attention and if it doesn't work where at least you had the relevant ones but if it works if you go into a second wave or a third wave then you can start packing them in and a movie like the warriors man can you pack it in you can have representation of just about many of those gangs that are in the film and just the warriors themselves there's quite a number of them i've seen some customizers do unbelievable job at making these homemade versions of these figures they're just incredible and again this is probably part of the reason why so many people you know are catching on to this retro thing where they're realizing that you know people are making these and they're uh, they're making some serious dough so uh these companies are catching on and just like anything else, I would love to just have at least one representation. So for Warriors, I, I want to have a uh, one of those baseball bat guys. And uh, for They Live, I need one of those uh, alien guys with the funky looking heads. So again, this was a toy fair that was a lot more interesting than I originally imagined it would be. Just kind of odd. <laughs> But luckily, it is not the type of thing that I'm going to be going crazy looking for stuff. Uh, hopefully, it's just some scattered stuff here or there. Like I said, my next purchase that I am looking, actively looking, is my Clad 2. I got to get my Clad 2. Uh, this way I have my, I can put him next to my original Clad 2, my, my Kenner Clad 2. I can put uh, my new modern, which is also cool because it's it's the Kenner-inspired card back also. So the card backs are going to look pretty similar, but all of a sudden you'll have a very modern one standing next to a, a very old one. Uh, it's a shame they never really put the previous Hasbro one carded in a single card because then you would have three versions of Clatu carded all three all three uh, stages of Clatu, if you will 
But overall, very happy with this uh, year's Toy Fair. Plato, Mirada, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. Today for Posters of the Month, I'm focusing on one poster. And I'm also focusing on its movie novel adaptation. And by this, I'm talking about the movie Scarface. The 1983 Brian De Palma Al Pacino film. Now, I know I've talked about this in the past from a different angle. I kind of came at Scarface, I think, at a different angle. That being a Brian De Palma special that we did a very long time ago. And possibly an inspiration for what came later to a lot of us that enjoyed better known as Miami Vice. There's a connection between those two things, which I'm sure had nothing to do with each other. The producers were not trying to duplicate anything. But there is a, a certain connection that you do see between that crime world and during that period in time, between the music and the style and just the feel and the flavor of it. There is a connection uh, that you can make between those two things. But today we are going to focus first off on the poster. The poster is one that I have. It's a reproduction. It's not an original. And it's what I would consider to be the classic poster. This is the poster that was seen most of the times if you went to the movie theater or any future incarnation of the film, whether it was VHS or Laserdisc, definitely Laserdisc. I'm talking about the black and white poster. Basically, it's a very simple poster. When you compare it to other posters, it's in a class by itself. It's a different design than anything else that we've covered here before. Basically, what you have is the, the, the poster itself is broken into two sections, a left and a right. The left side is has a black background, and the right side has a white background. And in the middle, you have a black and white faint image of Tony, Al Pacino, with mainly opposing colors. There's, you know, he's wearing what looks to be a white suit with a black shirt underneath. And it contrasts so much between the white suit and the black side, but he totally blends into the white side. One hand, he's holding a gun. The other hand, you can just see some, he's making a fist, I think, and he's, you can see some, maybe a couple of rings on his hand, and he's looking kind of downward. He's not looking at the camera. He's not looking at the, at the person looking at the poster. He's kind of looking down, uh, scowling almost. Up top, you have Al Pacino on the left, big red letters and Scarface on the right. The the only color, really, that's attached to this poster. Over the black side, you have the the text uh, that is supposed to make you understand what this movie's about. Uh, and it says, In the spring of 1980, the port of Mariel Harbor was open to thousands set sail for the United States. They came in search of the American dream. One of them founded on the sun-washed avenues of Miami. Wealth, power, and passion beyond his wildest dreams. He was Tony Montana. The world will remember him by another name. Scarface. And then a little bit below that, really close to where he's holding the gun, another little tagline that says, He loved the American dream with a vengeance. Over on the right side of the poster, you have the credits 
And again, this is a very unusual poster because normally those credits uh, on a traditional poster end up in the bottom. The bottom part of the poster is usually where you pile on all the credits. Here, no. Here they, they put all the credits on the right side, which is really odd. And they're kind of pretty big. I guess if you would have, you know, space-wise, if they would have thrown everything in the bottom, I guess you could have gotten that big too. Uh, you have, you know, obviously the director, producer, star, blah, 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 writer, Oliver Stone, director, Brian De Palma, star Al Pacino. This is definitely an Al Pacino vehicle. And then underneath you have soundtrack available, MCA Records, and then uh, Universal Pictures Read the Berkeley Book, which we are going to talk about that next. And the rating, which is R-rated. Okay, like I said, very simple. This is definitely a vehicle for Al Pacino. No, you know, no kidding. I don't want to say this is as gaudy as a Stallone poster, where up top, it's all Stallone. Here, Al Pacino's name and Scarface share the top billing equally, size-wise. If this was a Stallone film, it would have been Sylvester Stallone or just Stallone block letters on the top, huge. And then somewhere in the middle or the bottom, they would have thrown Scarface. Here, it's a little different. And it's possibly because it's, it's trying to be a little artsy. There is a background to the design of this poster. And let me just give you a couple of names. From the research that I've done, I was able to track down two names associated with this poster. The first one is Anthony Goldschmidt, who apparently was a designer who ran a advertising promotions poster kind of agency. And this is one of many, 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 many posters that he's responsible for. The company he founded was called Intralink Film Graphic Design. This is back in 1979. And he has tons and tons of super famous stuff like Scarface, E.T., a certain version of the E.T. poster, not the finger one. The finger one was from John Alvin, but the one where you see the spaceship coming down, that's credited to this gentleman. The Princess Bride, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Phantom of the Paradise, another Brian De Palma film. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of these films are also credited to John Alvin. As a matter of fact, I have a book that talks about all these films that he worked on. And I guess at the time, he might have worked on them through this agency. He might have been the artist, but he might have been collaborating with this other gentleman, Anthony Goldschmidt. What's really bizarre is that in a number of articles that I found about the Scarface poster, Alvin is credited as an uncredited artist that worked on this poster too. So it's really difficult for me to like narrow it down to see, was it Goldschmidt or was it Alvin? Which one exactly did this poster? So it might have been a collaboration between the two. It might have been a favor one did to the other. I don't know. But those two names are definitely attached to this poster. Now, the design itself, from what I understand, is considered to be a minimalist design. And again, it is very simple. It is black and white, left and right. Almost no color except for those blood red letters on the top. The letters do have a uh, either, a, I would call it a gold or, or a yellowish edge to the letters, but it's primarily red that you're looking at. You could kind of say, you know, if you try to interpret what is happening in this poster of, of what is it supposed to make you feel, 
it is very artsy compared to other things. When you look at some of these other posters that we've seen in the past, the traditional ones, what I would consider traditional, I mean, obviously you can go back to the 1800s, the early 1900s, you can go back to the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s is really where I go to when I think of classical design for posters. I mean, I, like I said, I know there have been other eras of poster making that are slightly different and more iconic, but for for my age, when I think of classical design, you know, I'm talking Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, hand-drawn, beautiful, classical, warm posters, that kind of stuff. Spielberg films, Lucas films, um, stuff like that. James Bond films, Jaws, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what I would consider to be classical. Then in the 80s is when they started kind of experimenting with Photoshop and airbrushing photos and getting away from drawing and painting and more of manipulating photography. That's when you get into the Rambo posters, you know, and and and, and the more modern things that are more manipulated. A lot of the uh, Schwarzenegger films, that kind of stuff, where you're highlighting the star and you're, you know, again, using a lot of that stuff. Granted, now it's probably more computer controlled, um, generated. The results are pretty similar in terms of how good they look, but the, the, the tools are very different. Well, this poster is funny because it doesn't really fit in either one of those two camps. It is not a classically drawn poster, and it is not a realistic photograph of the character poster either. It looks like it could be a photograph or, or a photograph that has been drawn, and then they turned it into black and white to create this black and white half and half image. What does the poster mean? Well, I think it's trying to be artsy, obviously. It's all about the character, in my opinion. You're dealing with a character that lives in a certain world. and his world, it's black or white. It's good guys and there's bad guys. There is no gray. There is no middle. And if you examine the film itself, Tony, you know, he's an anti-hero in a way. He starts off being an anti-hero. He, he is a criminal. He doesn't have much of any redeeming qualities. But at first, you know, you kind of understand that his criminal activities come out of desperation. And even the first guy that he kills on camera is a guy that was also like a bad guy. He was even a worse guy than him. So you, you kind of don't feel that bad about him, you know, getting killed. But as the movie progresses... You see the fact that this guy just, he goes from zero to a hundred. He does not make any detours anywhere. He knows exactly what he wants to achieve and he goes for it a hundred percent, leaving a trail of bodies <laughs> in its wake. He does have certain moments of, of humanity and empathy and compassion, if you will. And most of it has to do with his sister, which kind of turns the film a little creepy in a way. There is a point where he doesn't want to kill somebody because I think there's children involved. So you can kind of also say, well, there again is that whole, he might be redeemable. The problem is that this is a character that every for every redeemable possible moment, that is usually followed by 10 horrendously horrible moments of judgment and, and just the way he is. So... Again, the poster works perfectly, I think, because it tells you that with Tony, you're good or you're bad. You're a good guy or you're a bad guy. Obviously, the bad guys never think they're bad guys. But there is a scene in the restaurant where he says, say goodbye to the bad guy. And he's referring to himself, ironically. But 
in terms of there are no people in this movie that can kind of play it in the middle in no way get affected one way or the other whether you are oblivious to the lifestyle that tony's living or you go along with it and then manage to get out you're tainted and in a lot of situations even if you don't want to get involved in it you become collateral damage of tony Tony has a problem loving people, obviously. He doesn't get along with his mother very well because his mother knows exactly the type of work that he does and hates him for it. His sister is naive, but then little by little, she understands and accepts some of the things that Tony does and his associates, the the guy that she's dating, you know, during the end of the film. So she kind of reminds me a little bit of... uh, the Sopranos, where you have the wife that tries to be oblivious and tries to look the other way, but you know what? You're just as dirty as Tony. Ironically, these are two Tonys we're talking about here. So, again, with this poster, which is, a, like I said, it's very iconic. I don't remember ever seeing any other posters as far as promotion for the film. Now, I know that other posters exist, especially in the foreign market. There are different versions of the poster where you see Tony wearing, I think there's one that's a very close-up of his face, which is also the same one they used in the novel. Uh, And he's wearing, he might be wearing the red shirt, I'm not entirely sure. And that's the red shirt during the chainsaw scene, which gives you uh, a a very stark look at his face in terms of an intense individual. You could see the scar on his face and and on his uh, eyebrow. Uh, There's another poster where he's wearing the black suit, uh, which is towards the end of the film, and he's either sitting on his desk with the mountains of cocaine in front of of his desk, and he's just completely high and, you know, losing his mind, or the one that you see a picture of him holding the uh, machine gun rocket launcher, and he's kind of shooting down. Again, they're, you know, testosterone macho poses. Uh, I guess it's for a different market. Again, European market, that, that might work a little better. And I'm sure, I think I'm pretty sure I've seen some other ones that were probably created outside of the States. Uh, again, the foreign markets, sometimes they do their own thing. They, they, they're allowed to do their own thing. But as far as the U.S. goes, this black and white poster that I'm talking about is is probably the one that's more iconic and and everybody's most familiar with. The only variations in this particular style that I'm aware of is that there's one which is the coming in December to a theater near you, which is the same poster. There is no uh, R rating in the bottom because I guess they hadn't decided yet the R rating, you know, the rating of the film. Ironically, this is one of these films that was considered to be X-rated and it was threatened with an X rating until they made some changes and then they went back and forth and then they eventually did release it as an R-rated film. But anyway, the bottom has that coming in December. And then there's another variation that I've seen, which is exactly like this one, except over his, let's see, right shoulder on the black side of the poster, there's also the silhouette of Michelle Pfeiffer. And I believe it might have been a French poster. I guess maybe in France, the marketing department said, well, you need to put a woman in there too. This is definitely an Al Pacino vehicle. This is a movie that, you got to remember, Al Pacino is coming from the Godfather films, and that's where he hit it big. And it might have seemed a little unusual that he would want to go back to this kind of format again a gangster format because the the minute you mention a gangster film after godfather you're thinking well he just did that he just did the guy the, the gangster this is completely different 
completely, completely different. Now, when you move to the novel, it's funny because over the last year or two, you know, when I finally started looking for these movie adaptations, I was able to buy one on eBay. I think it only cost me three or four dollars. Pretty cheap novel. It was written by Paul Manette, who had done a lot of other books, but also a couple of other movie adaptations, including Predator, which I'm sure one day we'll, we will review that one too. The face of the novel does not use that art. Ironically, it does not use that art, but it does use that other picture of him, very serious, menacing looking, and I believe he does have that red shirt underneath. It's a little hard to see, but when you look at some of the bigger posters, you can kind of see it. I could be wrong because it's a very tight cropped picture. The novel, which I'm really enjoying the heck out of it, to me, feels great because of the fact that I'm reading it at a slow pace. It's almost like I'm watching a series. It's almost like I'm watching a 10, 12 episode series of Scarface. Again, going back to the Miami Vice format of, you know, a serialized kind of story being told, uh, you know, with this particular character in this particular environment in the, in the early 80s. It kind of works really well. One of the best things about the novel is that it uses just about every single deleted scene that we know about from the DVD releases and the Blu-ray releases. There are scenes in the movie that are only available, you know, as deleted scenes on home media. And there are scenes that I think might have only aired when they did a television version of this, you know, the TV adaptation of this, which if there is a movie that fails miserably... And it is the funniest thing to watch in broadcast television form is Scarface. Because the amount of editing they have to do, dubbing, of all the cursing that Tony does in this movie, to make it presentable for a general audience, it is incredible the amount of fake curses that they have to dub over. And the stupid things that he has to say in order not to curse. Or to not make it sound like a curse. Or an acceptable curse. That's really funny, but that's a whole other story. For example, the book has some of its biggest things that I did notice in the book is it tells you the whole story of Tony growing up and Tony in Cuba and him going to jail because he's a petty thief, how he gets the scar, he shoots a guy who he's messing around with his wife and then the guy cuts his face in a fight that they're having, he ends up in jail, he ends up being sent to Angola to go fight a war there on behalf of Cuba as a it's almost like a forced prisoner type of scenario and then he's able to escape or get away from it more or less AWOL he goes AWOL more or less and then he goes and hides off in some other countries I think he goes to Spain at some point and eventually they catch him and bring him back to Cuba again where he's back in jail again and that's when the movie that we see kind of starts of him, you know, uh, being um, put into a boat with the rest of the other prisoners and then regular people are trying to get out and, and that's how the movie begins. There is one additional sequence here that they throw in the book is that as they're traveling, you know, through the sea, they get hit by a storm, the particular boat that he's on, and they end up having to abandon ship, I believe. And they're out there in a very small raft kind of situation and there's a a young boy that's drowning and tony jumps into the water to rescue him and is able to pluck him out of the water and eventually get rescued themselves you know back into i guess a bigger boat that eventually uh, reaches the shore and he kind of stays with the boy 
until he is reunited with his father, I believe, or some family members uh, that they kind of hook up with him again, and he's able to, uh, you know, let go of him, which kind of shows a different side of Tony, which we don't see in the film too much. Again, these are scenes that I believe maybe were never shot in the first place. These are scenes that might or might not have been part of the script and then decided not to shoot them. Or these are scenes that were completely invented by the writer, Paul Manette, as part of the process of writing the novelization. There's a scene where Tony surprises his sister, I think, by having like a circus brought to this little area. And they have performers and circus performers and animals and this and that. And he's riding a horse at one point with his sister and his and his girlfriend at the time. Or I don't know if she was his wife at this point. And it's kind of creepy because you can tell there's something really creepy about the way that he feels about his sister. Which it's even stronger in the novel. We also learn in the novel about Elvira's background. His wife, you know, after he kills her husband, uh, we do learn that, you know, she comes from money, but the different, gen you know, the older generations, you know, how many hundreds of years you can go back, uh, how they all kind of lost all this money and she's just out there high half the time and just, uh, she's, a, she's a complete mess. There's two additional scenes in the book also having to do with that young boy that he met earlier throughout the book. One of them has to do with him visiting the family to make sure everything's going good. And I think he even drops off a couple of bucks to the family. So he's kind of, in a way, kind of watching after this kid from afar. He wants to make sure everything's all right. And the family really appreciates his help and that's that kind of thing. And then towards the end, you know, when everything is coming apart, he makes one final visit to the family to kind of drop off a sack full of money because I guess he can kind of tell things are going to go really, really bad. And in general, I guess with these scenes of this boy and his family, it's interesting to see how the writer possibly, because again, this could have been Oliver Stone or this could have been the writer of the novel, how they're trying to show a, a, a human compassionate side of Tony which we don't see in the movie. I also found more scenes of Tony towards the end of the film, of the story, kind of losing it. His jealousy over what's happening with, with his sister and who she's seeing uh, makes him crazier and crazier, which increases the, the coke usage. And because the walls are kind of closing in around them from the cops and the other drug dealers, you know, they really, really work that in the book. They give you a, a more concrete way of how he is kind of losing control of everything. And between the drug habit that he's losing control over that too, which is something he didn't really have much in the beginning of the story. The ending sequence, the final shootout, the going out in a blaze of glory sequence, if you will, is also a little different. One little sidebar aspect of it has to do with the fact that instead of him having that automatic weapon with the rocket launcher underneath, he's using an actual RPG to shoot down some of his enemies at the end. He fires it a couple of times, which 
Yeah, that's a little different. And 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 the fact that it's that different leads me to believe that maybe that's what it was on the original script. From what I've been reading and, and watching some of these uh, making of documentaries, they did change quite a bit of, uh, you know, improvisational or last minute changes to the script as they were shooting. There's also a sequence where he goes out and frees as you know as he knows the end is coming he goes out to the to the backyard and like frees the monkeys that he has in this backyard zoo and the birds however the tiger that he has back there he shoots the tiger in the head which is kind of kind of kind of weird it's like wow ooh i guess you know in the book it's almost like he's shooting himself because he is that tiger that that uncontrollable animal there the sequences at the end, you know, of that final battle, they're spaced out slightly different in different locations. He is kind of trying to make his way back to the office, but he is in different parts of the house at different times. So it, it does have a little bit of a different staged feel to it in terms of where things are taking place. Obviously, one of the hardest things to portray as I mentioned earlier on a book, is not only music, but action sequences. Action sequences are just so visual that you kind of lose a little bit of it. And here, it again, that operatic feel to it that you visually get to see as Tony's life comes to an end. In the book, you do get that, but not as grand. It seems a little bit faster and with not as much grandiose spectacle. The book itself ends with basically his neighbors coming out of their houses looking around to see what just happened because like, you know, it's like World War III in the, in the suburbs where these mansions are and uh, you could hear the cops are coming and people are just kind of going back about their business. So it kind of shows how insignificant his life really turns out to be as far as everybody else is concerned. Very different feel. As I mentioned before, there was a lot of scenes where... You do get them in the book that were deleted from the film, and, and but you can't see them. All these scenes are available. You can see them on YouTube, or you can see them on uh, the uh, Blu-rays or the DVD special editions. And you might even see them on the Laserdisc. I remember this is one of my probably one of my Laserdisc films. I'm pretty sure this was part of my collection at the time back in the uh, back in the '90s. But th this was a, a really really good one. The thing about this movie that is also a little different when it comes to the novel is that if you listen to some of the making of documentaries and the interviews with De Palma and especially Al Pacino, is that a lot is made about his acting. The acting is not perfect. The acting is not a perfect imitation of what a Cuban guy or a Cuban gangster would sound like. It's almost a, an interpretation a, a characterization of that. And Al Pacino says that, that that's how he did it. He did not go, go out there looking to imitate the, the sounds and the exact uh, mannerisms and voice uh, tones of somebody who spoke that language. And he was completely surrounded by people who did that just so he can feel comfortable and learn as much as possible. But he didn't go out there looking to be an impersonator. There are people that can impersonate other ethnicities, actors, sounds, uh, languages, and they're excellent at it, but he's not. What he can do is he can get the essence of the character, and what he did 
which I'm pretty sure the Palma was on board with this and kind of realized it, is that he said he made the character two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. He wasn't, the character was not that realistic. It was a an interpretation of a character. He said it was very operatic. So in other words, it was a little larger than life, the character and the story and how the story is told. The violence is larger than life. Everybody's reactions, everybody's interactions, they're not exactly the way that you would say a dramatic, straight film goes. The acting style is different. You look at Al Pacino in The Godfather, and and the acting in The Godfather is a little more straight. It's a little more realistic. Granted, it's it is entrenched in Italian culture, and you do get all these different Italian backgrounds in here or there, but for the most part, it's pretty straight. Here, it's a little over the top, but it's a little over the top on purpose, because that's how the story is told. Now, that is something that on the book, you don't get, because in the book, you're not seeing the actor. You're only hearing the script, and you're reading his thoughts, obviously, of the different characters, specifically this main character. So to get the full real effect of what they were going for and what they achieved, and this is one of the things that they were criticized initially. Apparently, the movie was a disaster in terms of critical reviews, and even some of the people, a lot of the people watching it, they couldn't sit through it. This is a movie that I think is kind of like the thing. At the time, people didn't get it, and... The critics didn't understand it. It took time for people to really get into this movie. And I mean, I love this film. But it's, again, it's in a certain place. You cannot compare this to a lot of other films or crime capers or anything like that. This is a completely different monster that you're dealing with. And it is possibly one of his best roles in terms of him having to go beyond what is expected of him as an actor. He had to go over the top, make it bigger without being a complete clown. Obviously, he's done movies where he's a complete clown. He's completely over the top. You know, there there, there have been movies like that. But here, he is just like a wounded tiger. He is just ready to kill anything that moves. And that kind of energy is what fuels his performance in the film. And unfortunately, like I said, in the book, it's a little harder to see that. You can read it, but you don't see it. So I would say, if you're a fan of this film, this is one of those situations where it's great to be able to pick up more information about it. You wanted to know about deleted scenes, well, like I said, most of the deleted scenes that I'm aware of, they're all in here. They're right here in the book. And there's even extra stuff that I don't know for sure if it is created by the author or these might have been, you know, more Oliver Stone things that were never shot. I don't know. The one thing that you really don't get in the book, unfortunately, and obviously it's impossible, is the music. This is one of these movies that I mentioned in the past, like Tron or Saturday Night Fever, where the music is practically a character. And I'm not talking about the, you know, cheesy 70s disco, you know, 70s leftover, 70s, tipping into the 80s, that kind of music. No. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the the Giorgio Moroder score. This is the same guy uh, that did Midnight Express. He's worked with a ton of people doing very electronic kind of music. And here he does it again. And you do feel that 
again, when I make that connection to Miami Vice, there is such a, there's a thread that goes between this movie and Miami Vice. Not only in the content, in the story, in the characters, in the look, the music. There is a link, definitely, between this movie and the Jan Hammer score of Miami Vice. You feel that connection. And it, it definitely started here. But unfortunately, again, it's a book. The book cannot help you with the music side. This is also a movie, I believe, that has been tried a number of times on pre-production uh, to be remade. And at this stage, I really think it's better not to be remade. Because the story itself, I mean, don't get me wrong, De Palma is, a, is or was an excellent director. And for his time, you know, he was this this almost like a Hitchcock protege in terms of his reputation and his style. He kind of lost it a little bit. I think lately he hasn't really done anything that great as far as I'm concerned. But without Al Pacino in this movie, I don't think this movie could have worked. I don't think there would have been an actor of that caliber that could have elevated this movie like this. And if they redo it now, the story is there. They can set it in a different location like they were saying. Maybe they can, they can make it more modern now and it doesn't have to be you know, Cuba and Miami. It could be something else. Fine. The problem is that... This has to be a such a strong actor that can bring on something that we've never seen before. And, and believe me, we had never seen something like this before. This is kind of like Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. We had never seen a character so out there with that role that just completely ate it up and destroyed everything in sight. That's what he did with this film. I do not see an actor these days that can pull that off. Hopefully I'm wrong. And one day they do make it and then they have an actor of that caliber. But once again, if you're a fan of Scarface, I know there's not a lot of product out there. I know there's some video games or something that they, they put out or they tried to put out or whatever. But this is definitely the next place to go when it comes to trying to dig a little deeper into the character and to get your hands on certain scenes and certain parts of the movie that got cut out and then you can only watch them you know as a deleted scene you know when they put these deleted scenes they don't really cut them into the film they don't do like a director's cut with extra scenes in them but in the book there it is it's perfect for you they're all in the proper place in the great order so definitely give this one a shot all right i hope you guys enjoyed today's episode we started off with new york toy fair we focused quite a bit on Star Wars, which, you know, you know I always will, and went over some of this new vintage -y stuff that's coming out and traditional stuff that's coming out, and, you know, we jumped over to some reaction figures and other companies that are doing similar stuff to that. It is very retro, just seems to be the hot thing these days. And then we switched gears for our poster of the month and covered Scarface, the 1983 film starting Al Pacino. Again, another one of these very, very memorable posters. Uh, different style, uh, a completely different style compared to some of the stuff that I'm used to uh, reviewing. And while we were on that subject, we hit the movie adaptation of Scarface. Another great treat when we can get more background and more character development and a heck of a lot of deleted scenes in book form. So... On behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening, and we will see you here soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody.
1980, Miami. They called it Little Havana, where the American dream had a price tag. And only one man in a million was hungry enough to pay. His name exploded through the streets, and his smile seduced a city. His eyes ignited passion, and his hands built an empire. Scarface. Those who loved him feared him. Those who feared him respected him. Al Pacino is Scarface. He loved the American dream with a vengeance. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at GeekFestRants. I don't know what we're yelling about! GeekFestRants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2019. <laughs>